you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And is it warm in here to anyone else? Yes. Yes. So we'll get a little air going through this place by the end of the service. It'll be working. And no, I'm kidding. We'll, we'll try to get it going now. Mark chapter 6. I want to start with this this morning. Churches in which it's unsafe to doubt create skeptics. Churches in which it is unsafe to doubt create skeptics. I have seen this over and over and over throughout the years of my ministry. Young men and women who grew up in churches in which it was unsafe to doubt, unsafe to ask questions about their faith, unsafe to say, I don't know if I believe that. I'm wondering if that's true. Later in life, these people, these men and women, often come to believe that if Christianity wasn't stout enough to sustain their doubt, it must not be true. If I have met one of these people over the years of my career, I have met a thousand of them. I want you to understand that it is okay to experience doubt here at City Church. One of our core values is intellectual integrity. And by that, what we mean is that we want you to ask questions about your faith in Christ. We want you to wrestle with Christianity. We want you to wrestle with your faith because it's in the wrestling that you come to own what you believe about Christ. In fact, I would even go so far to say that if you have never doubted, if you have never wrestled with your faith, you haven't taken Christianity seriously enough because the claims of Christianity are so profound, uh, so substantive, so substantial, That if you haven't doubted your faith, you haven't taken it seriously enough. The claims are so significant, so extreme, that you ought to doubt them. And if you don't doubt them, you haven't taken your faith seriously enough. We happen to believe here at City Church that Christianity is substantive enough to handle the most difficult questions that you can ask it. And so, in fact, as we continue the series that we have been in on the Gospel of Mark, from the first half of the book of Mark, I want to show you how to handle your doubts. What should you do when you experience doubts about Christianity, doubts about the reality of God, doubts about the existence or the goodness uh, of God, doubts about whether God is answering your prayers? What should you do when you experience doubt? Okay, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, again, I just want to say, for those of you who are new or who are listening to us by our app or our podcast, welcome. We're so glad that you're here uh, or that you're listening to us uh, this morning. We uh, are in a series on the first half of the book of Mark, which covers the first three and a half years uh, of the life of Jesus. Now, we'll finish this half of the book in just a couple of months, and then sometime in the spring, we'll pick back up on the last half of the gospel of Mark. But right now, we're in the first half first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, and today I want to start reading at verse 14 of Mark chapter 6. Verse 14, King Herod, King Herod heard about this. What is this? Well, we just left last week a passage in which the disciples had gone out uh, under Jesus' authority. They'd healed sick people. They had cast out demons, all sorts of things. And so when King Herod hears about all of this, it says, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Now, I I just want to say something very quickly, uh, just to interrupt as we go through the flow of this. Let's just register how ominous this piece of news is. Jesus' popularity has spread uh, even to the political ruler over Israel. And in case you didn't know it, kings don't like to hear about other kings who are invading their kingdom. And you'll see, in fact 
how ruthless Herod can be as we read on. Some were saying, they were saying this about Jesus, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah and still others claimed he's a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now, if you've been with us from the outset of this series, you may remember that we met John in chapter 1. He was Jesus' cousin. He was a prophet who was to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry. In that, he began to call the people of Israel to repentance from their sins. Now, verse 17 begins uh, the account. It kind of gives us backstory now about how John died, okay? For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he, Herod, had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John. And she wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask, uh, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her within an oath, with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And her mother said, she's a real sweet lady. She asks, the head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. It's a gruesome story, isn't it? I mean, it is gruesome, and it's tragic. There's some irony intended in this passage. When Mark starts verse 14 by calling Herod King Herod, here's the thing. Herod wasn't a king. He liked to be called a king, but he wasn't a king. The Herodian dynasty were colonial ru rulers over Judea and Galilee under, under imperial Rome. So because of the massive size of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus had rulers throughout the empire who were to represent him and his rule. And one of the things that the colonial rulers were not supposed to do was to unnecessarily offend the cultural and moral sensibilities of the people they ruled. But Herod did this. He, he offended people all the time. Case in point here in this passage, this Herod, who by the way was named Ant uh, uh, Antipas, this particular Herod named Antipas married the woman in this passage, Herodias. But you can probably guess when you see her name that she was related to him. She was actually both his niece 
which made their relationship incestuous, but she was also the ex-wife of his brother, Philip. Now, both of these facts, the fact that he took her as his wife, infuriated the Jews. But the only Jewish person who was willing to speak out about it was John the Baptist. And so Herod, on orders from Herodias, had John the Baptist thrown in jail because she insisted upon it. Okay. Now, here's something that it might interest you to know. It doesn't tell us this in this passage, but it does tell us this in the Gospel of Luke about this particular incident. It might interest you to know that during this time that John the Baptist is in jail, we know this from the Gospel writer Luke, that John sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus, and he says, he says this, it's found in Luke 7, 19, he says, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, what's the point? Why is that important for you to know? Because of this. John the Baptist, the prophet, the one who was to prepare the way for Jesus, he was struggling with doubt. He looked at at his circumstances. He looked at what Jesus was doing and what Jesus wasn't doing, and he wondered, if he's the Messiah, if he's the king, Why has it he gotten me out of jail? Even John the Baptist doubted Jesus. Back to the story. Herodias gets Herod to throw John in prison, but she can't have him executed. Why not? Verse 20, I want you to look at something in verse 20. It says something very interesting. Notice what it says. It says, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked To listen to him. Now, what this means is that while John was in prison, Herod would bring him out and let him preach to him. Now, that's odd. Why in the world would you bring a person out day after day after day and let him preach to you and denounce you the whole time? The reason is, is that on the one hand, he liked him. There was something about John's message that touched Herod's heart. He was attracted to his message. But on the other hand, he was repulsed. The word puzzled here in this passage is the Greek word apareo, which means to waver indecisively at a crossroad. In other words, in other words, you're standing at a crossroad, and you're like, do I go this way or do I go that way? Which is where Herod is. Right? He's at this crossroad, and he is pulled. He's divided. On the one hand, he likes what he hears from John. On the other hand, he is repulsed by John. Perhaps he... Uh, Perhaps he hears John's message and, and he wants to respond, but then he thinks about all the changes that this would mean to his life. All he would have to repent of, all he would have to uh, uh, surrender to the Lord, all he would have to change, even giving up Herodias. And then he finds himself but repulsed by that idea. In a word, what Herod is experiencing here is doubt. Doubt. He wonders, could what John is saying be true? And if it is, would that be a better life than the one I'm living now? But he doubts. He doubts. Now, I want you to think about this. On the one hand, you have John, a believer in Jesus, experiencing doubt. Jesus isn't getting him out of prison, and that confuses him, and it makes him start to doubt. And on the other hand, you have Herod, not a believer in Jesus, experiencing doubt. And you see, doubt is something that you can actually experience both inside and outside of the Christian faith. I want you to write this down. Doubt about Christianity is a reality of life both inside and outside of Christianity. 
Say it again. Doubt about Christianity is a reality of life both inside and outside of Christianity. There's nothing wrong with doubt. In fact, doubt is good. Doubt is healthy. Doubt is normal. I have doubted. John doubted. Many great people in the Bible doubted. Don't be afraid to doubt. It's okay to doubt Christianity. It's okay to doubt God. It's okay to doubt what you believe. That's okay. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. Okay, fine, you say. But what should I do with the doubt that I have? Well, I want to show you three things from this passage about what you should do with your doubt when you experience doubt of any kind as it relates to Christianity, as it relates to God, as it relates to your faith or the practice of your faith. Here's what you should do. First of all, I want you to do this. I want you to think of your doubt as a terrific window of opportunity. Think of it as a terrific window of opportunity. Now, what do I mean uh, by that? What do I mean by a terrific window of opportunity? Understand that the Herods, all of the Herods, you know, throughout the, uh, throughout the generations, these were miserable men, all of them, because they were power hungry. If you're power hungry and you are quite literally stabbing people in the back to protect your power and to get power, uh, you tend to be a very lonely person. And I think that the whole point of this passage is to show us that it was Herod's doubts, his doubts about whether his approach to life was the best way to live, his doubts about whether power was a worthy God to live for, wondering if perhaps John did have a better God to live for. I, want, I think the whole point of this passage is to show us that those doubts gave him an opportunity to change his life, a terrific opportunity to change his life. It was his doubts that gave him that opportunity. Now, here's the thing. If you grew up in a church, or if you grew up in a religious background uh, that didn't understand the gospel very well, or didn't preach the gospel at all, uh, you likely are very surprised this morning to hear me say that you should think of doubt in a positive way. Uh, because where you came from, questions and expressions of doubt were squelched. Why? Why were they squelched? Why does that happen? Because in places that don't understand the gospel or preach the gospel, God's acceptance of you in those places, God's acceptance of you, his blessings on your life, uh, those things are conditioned completely upon the quality of your faith. And so you have to understand that in those churches, in those religious backgrounds, you in order for you to stay on God's good side, you have to have psychological certainty about everything. But that isn't Christianity. You see, the gospel works completely different from religion or from legalistic expressions of Christianity. In the gospel, God's salvation, his blessings, his acceptance are all conditioned only upon the one in whom you believe. Okay? Not your obedience, not the quality of your faith, only upon the one in whom you believe, Jesus. It's not how great your faith is. It's not how much you obey. God's salvation, God's acceptance of you is based solely on Jesus. That's it. Not you in any way, shape, or form. Now let me, think of it this way. You came into the room today. Uh, you sat in these chairs, okay? 
Now, you may have had a bad experience with chairs lately. Maybe you've sat in a few chairs lately that fell apart as soon as you sat in them. And so you were a little scared. Maybe you were really scared to sit in these chairs. You thought, I don't want to make a fool out of myself. I don't want to sit in this chair and have it fall apart again. But you thought to yourself, well, you know what? Sitting is better than standing through this whole service. So you took a chance and sat down. But you did so with a great deal of fear and doubt. Let's say you had 25% faith in these chairs and 75% doubt about whether they would hold you up. When you sat down in your chair, were you saved 25% from falling on the floor? I, can you guys answer? Were you saved 25% from falling on the floor? No, you weren't. You were, you were saved 100%. Why? Because it wasn't the quality of your faith in the chair that saved you. It was the quality of the chair that saved you. You get that? You understand that? Okay. Likewise, you might only have 25% faith in Jesus and 75% doubt. But 25% faith in Jesus gets you 100% of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. Only in religious circles, only in places where there are legalistic expressions of Christianity, is doubt a terrible thing. In gospel Christianity, doubt can be a terrific window of opportunity to change your life in some significant way. And so as you, as you encounter doubt in your own uh, experience, in your own understanding of Christianity... Look at it as a tremendous, terrific window of opportunity to change your life in some way. Okay? Here's the second second way I want you to think about handling doubt. It comes from this passage. Realize that doubt disrupts your inadequate ideas about reality. This is why it's so terrific. This is why doubt is such a good thing. It disrupts your inadequate ideas about reality. I don't know if you realize it, but every one of us has ideas about reality. And they are largely determined uh, by the family and culture that you grew up in, plus the experiences that you've had in life. This is why marriage is such a hard thing. You've got one person with a whole set of ideas about reality. You've got another person with a whole different set of ideas about reality. And they come together. And that works so smoothly all the time, doesn't it? They have different ideas about reality. And here's the thing. You live your life based on these ideas that you have about reality. What's so powerful about these ideas is that you don't even realize you have them because they're so deeply ingrained in your psyche that they do their work in you much like software that runs your computer. You don't even know they're there. Like You don't even know the software's there. You don't know what the software's doing all the time. You don't know that. Okay? You've got these ideas that are in you. You don't even know them. You you take them for granted. You assume everybody thinks the way you think. And so you live according to these ideas. Now, I want you to take Herod, for example. Here's a man who has lived his whole life with this idea. Power equals value and significance. That's, that's, Herod's, that's the idea that controls Herod's life. He believes this so deeply, and he's been believing this for so long, he doesn't even realize that this has become the central organizing principle of his life. That everything he does is all about getting and, uh, and, and containing uh, or keeping power. As a result, 
He does what he wants, and he takes what he wants. There are no absolute rights and wrongs in Herod's world except whatever he thinks is right and wrong. But I want you to look back at something. This man who is all about power and always has been, look back at verse 20. Look back at verse 20 again. The text says something fascinating to me. Herod, a man of power, who's always lived for power, who has all the power, feared John. And protected him. Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Now that is odd. How do you explain that? Here's a man who's got all the power in Israel. All the power of Caesar Augustus. All the power of the Roman Empire behind him. And he's afraid of a man in chains. How do you explain this? John has uh, caused Herod to doubt. And suddenly, Herod's ideas about reality are disrupted. He sees this man who, by all earthly standards, is weak. And yet, somehow, he's more powerful than Herod. He sees John's integrity. He sees his courage. Uh, He's the only man in the kingdom who would tell Herod the truth. And, 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 And it threw Herod into doubt. And he wonders, could what this man be, is saying, could it be true? Could this man actually be speaking for God? And if it's true, maybe there's something better to live for than status and power. You see, what happens is his doubt begins to disrupt this idea about reality that he's always had, that power equals uh, value and significance. His doubt begins to cause that. John is a disruptive force in Herod's life that makes him examine his ideas about reality. He's like, maybe my ideas about reality are all wrong. In fact, it's probably the first time that he really even thinks about this idea that power equals value and significance because of John. John's caused him this kind of doubt. And doubt always, doubt always does that to you. Uh, there's an old Scottish writer and minister, his name is George MacDonald, and he once said this, listen to this, I don't have it up here on the screen for you, I apologize for that, but here it is. Everything difficult that comes into your life indicates something more than your theory of life embraces. Uh, let me say this again. Everything difficult that comes into your life indicates something more than your theory of life embraces. Now what he means is that when you get into difficulty of some kind, whenever you get into struggling, whenever you get into doubt, you have to begin to examine your ideas about reality. And you begin to see that your ideas about reality are inadequate. John in prison. Uh, you can imagine John in prison. He's thinking, I, I've been preparing the way for this guy. He's the, if he's the Messiah, he'll get me out of prison. He's the most powerful guy in the world. He'll get me out of prison, of course, Right? That makes sense that John would be thinking that. But Jesus doesn't do it. And John suddenly has to begin to think about his ideas of the Messiah in new ways. Herod, living for power, meets John and has to begin to think about his ideas about power and status. Doubt challenged one man who is in the faith and one man outside the faith to confront the fact that both of them had ideas about reality that were inadequate. And you see, here's what I want you to get, is that your doubts can do the same for you. 
Without doubt, you would never even examine your own inadequate ideas about reality. Doubt can cause you to think, well, maybe my ideas of reality is wrong. For instance, let me, let me give you a couple of for instances here. Perhaps all of your life you have been taught that if you obey God, he is obligated to come through for you in tough situations, Right? Like, you come from a religious background, and religious people believe that. They're, they're like, you know, you, you believe in God, you obey God, and then God will come through for you the way you want him to come for, through for you. And if he doesn't come through for you, it's because you weren't obeying enough or you weren't believing enough. That's not Christianity, that's religion. But, but that's what you were taught growing up, okay? And so you take a stand for something at your work, let's say. And you're sure that because you've obeyed God, that God is going to come through for you, and he's going to honor this stand you have taken. But instead, you got fired. And you begin to doubt. Maybe I don't live in a world in which my obedience obligates God. Or maybe you think to yourself, there is no God in heaven. Or maybe you think to yourself, I've been believing in something that isn't real. Or maybe, maybe it's just that you need to Would you notice the third word on our banners over here? It says unlearn. Maybe it's just that you need to unlearn the inadequate ideas about reality that you have lived with for so long. You see, doubt uh, doubt can be a good thing because it can open you up to a God who is bigger than the God who you used to believe in and a faith that can handle real reality in this world. Here's another example. Maybe you've been coming to City Church and you uh, listen to the music and, and the sermons and you meet the people and you're puzzled. You're puzzled, like Herod. For years you've been convinced that there is nothing to Christianity, that there's no God in the, in the universe. But perhaps you've been coming and you're hearing something or you're experiencing something that is causing you to think, wait a minute. Perhaps my ideas of reality are wrong. What if I live in a world in which there is a God? You see, that's a good thing. Doubt has disrupted your inadequate views, ideas of reality, and they have opened a window of opportunity for profound change to enlarge your ideas about life and God and the gospel and reality. This is what doubt does. This is why it's so terrific. It disrupts your inadequate ideas about reality. And if you listen, if you if you listen to those doubts, if you wrestle through those doubts, you will find that it gives you a new adequate view of reality, a bigger view of God, and a clearer understanding of the gospel and how it works in your life. That's why doubt is such a good thing. But I want you to hear me. Every, every week, I know I do this. Every week I, I say, well, I have something to say that if you don't remember anything else, remember this. Okay, here it is. Remember this. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Okay. Realize that windows of opportunity don't stay open forever. So you better act now. I hope you'll write that down somewhere. I hope you'll put that in your phone. I hope you put it, you know, in your iPad. I hope you put it somewhere you see it on a regular basis. Realize windows of opportunity don't stay open forever. So you better act now. And here's what I mean. Verse 21 is deeply ironic. I want you to look at it. 
Verse 21 says, finally, the opportune time came. Opportune for whom? For Herodias. See, Herodias suddenly saw this banquet that Herod was holding with all these uh, chief muckety-mucks around him. And she said, this is my chance. The terrible irony is that when Herodias' window of opportunity opened, Herod's window of opportunity closed forever. And don't think that that is a coincidence. There are evil powers at work in this world to bring that about. Herod was listening to John. He had a chance to act. He was processing, processing, processing everything that John was saying. But he never made a decision about what John was saying. But on the other hand, when Herodias saw her window of opportunity, she acted decisively. She sends her daughter in to dance for Herod and for his guests. And look, I, I, re- I don't mean to be crass, but to a guy like Herod, there is nothing that will move him out of his headspace like a seductive dance from a beautiful young thing, even if she's, re- if, if she's related to him. And don't you know that Herodias knew that about Herod? Don't you know that? Not long after John the Baptist was killed, you still see Herod's conscience, uh, conscience getting after him. Because when he hears about Jesus, what does he say? He says, well, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. You see, he's haunted by John. But this haunting, this, this, this won't last. Because when we get to the end of the book of Mark, and we get to the end of all the Gospels, you know what happens. Jesus goes before Herod, and all Herod does is mock Jesus. He shows no spiritual interest anymore. He shows no spiritual openness to Jesus And here's the other thing. Jesus doesn't say a word to to Herod either because he knows that the moment to change Herod's life was gone forever. Here's what I want you to consider. I know you because you're just like me. (laughs) You think you are in complete control over your heart. But I want to tell you that you're not. You do not have the power and the control over your heart that you think you have. If at any time in your life, but certainly if right now, if you're feeling open to something God would like to do in your life and you know you should do it but you're afraid, don't you dare think that the window of opportunity is going to be open forever because it's not. At some point in the future, like Herod, you will become incapable of responding to this opportunity if you don't act now. Now, that's as serious and as straightforward and as grave as I could put it. You don't have control over your heart. And at some point, if you don't respond, it's going to close. Forever. Now, I know, just, I'm going to close here. I, I know that some of you, you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, okay, yes, 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 I, I, I want to respond, but I'm afraid. If I let this doubt uh, enlarge my idea about God and change my views on reality, it's going to force me to do something or to sacrifice something that I'm afraid to do or that I'm afraid to sacrifice. I want to ask you something. Do you understand that you are a slave to that fear right now? You have built your life around something that is enslaving you. 
Whatever the central thing is in your emotional life, the thing that makes you feel most good about yourself, that is your God. And you are a slave to it. For Herod, it was power. For you, I wonder what it was, what it is. And let me tell you something. You know, as I said, for Herod, it was power. Herodias knew, uh, she knew this. She knew that the central organizing principle, the most valuable thing in his life, the thing that was his God was power, which is why she was so lethally successful. Even though Herod was starting to listen to John, she knew that what Herod really feared most was the loss of face before the powerful men who were around him. He has built his life on the idea that power equals life, and he was a pawn in her hand. Listen to me now on this. If anything but Jesus Christ is the center of your life, if you have any other source of self-worth and self-esteem than the love of God through Jesus Christ, you are a pawn too. You will be a slave to that for the rest of your life. So what do you do? What do you do with these things that you're a pawn to? Two words, repent and release. Repent and release. Here's a hand sign, release, open hands. What have you built your life around right now that you are so afraid of losing if you open yourself up to a new view of reality? What is it? For some of you, it's a man. If you open yourself up to God, you will have to give up a man in your life. And you're scared to death of that. For some of you, it's a career. You think that if you, uh, if you open yourself up to what God wants to do in your life right now, that you'll have to give up a career. For some of you, it's, it's control over your family. It's like, I, I want to control everyone in my family. And if I open up myself up to God, if I, if I, if I do that, I, I'm going to re, have to release my family to God. I'm going to have to let him do with them what he wants to do. For some of you, it's a dream that you have in your mind of some kind. Repent and release those things to God. And I want to tell you something. Some of those things he will let die. And it's better that he does. Others will be resurrected and they will burst forth in new life in such a way that you barely even recognize them. But right now, if there's something that you're sensing that God is wanting to do in your life that doubt has created, repent and release. Repent and release. I want you to know there was a moment on the cross when even Jesus doubted. The Gospels record that he cried out at one moment on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment on the cross, even Jesus doubted. 
He experienced the ultimate doubt because in that moment, he lost the face of God. He released his very well-being, his very life to his father on the cross. And he did so for you and me so that we could have our sins forgiven and begin a relationship with God that could last forever. He died for your sins. He died for mine so that we can know that God loves us even when we doubt. Even when we don't have our act together. You are saved by him, not by the quality of your faith or your obedience to him. And when you understand that, you suddenly realize that doubt can be a terrific opportunity. You don't have to freak out about your doubts. You don't have to freak out about anybody's doubts for that matter. You'll look at your ideas about reality and you'll make your decision. You will see a God who is bigger than the God who used to believe in, who can handle reality the way reality really is. A gospel that is bigger than the gospel used to believe in. A gospel that can handle reality. You will let your doubts move you to release the things that you have held so tightly that have enslaved you. And for the first time in your life, you will be free, really free, and you will experience a peace that transcends human understanding because you know that you are saved by grace, not by purity of certainty, and not by purity of obedience, but saved by grace, by faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and release. You better act now because this window of opportunity isn't going to be here forever. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus Christ, I uh, am unable as a pastor, as a communicator, to convey the urgency of this matter, the graveness of this matter to these people. Uh, Only you in your spirit can do that. Lord Jesus Christ, would you convey that matter? If there are people here this morning, Lord, that are doubting in some way, maybe there are people who have faith in you, and maybe they're going through circumstances that have caused them to doubt their view of reality. Lord, would you give them the courage this morning to examine those ideas, to find them inadequate, and to repent and release of those, and to trust in your goodness and your greatness that can handle all of their reality. Lord, on the other hand, if there are people here this morning who have been listening to this message and uh, perhaps for the first time that they have understood that the gospel that Christianity is not about their obedience or even the quality of their faith, but it's all about Jesus. Or would you give them the courage this morning to take advantage of this window of opportunity to repent of their trust in other gods and to release their life to you, to let you be their God, their Lord, their Savior. Or would you give them that courage this morning? Would you give them the power of the Spirit to do that this morning? Would you open their eyes in a way that I cannot? Would you do that, Lord? Because this moment is so urgent. More urgent than anything else that they're going to do today, this week, this year. Lord, would you impress that upon our hearts today? 
We worship you, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are big enough to handle reality. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship this morning, that we pray, that we listen, that we, that we speak, that we, that we bring our stuff to you. It's in your name that we do that. It's not in our name. It's not in my name. It's not about the quality of my faith or the quality of my obedience. Goodness, if it were, there would be no hope for me. Thank you that it's all about my salvation, that my ongoing relationship with you is based upon you, not, not me. The quality of, of you, and your work on the cross, and your life, your death, not mine. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.